Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of torture, gun violence, and killing. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. On July 8, 2022, the former Prime Minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe, was fatally shot while speaking at a political rally in the city of Nara. The alleged assassin, Tetsuya Yamagami, reportedly used a homemade weapon, a patchwork of duct tape, wires, wood, and plastic to gun him down. Months later, the full facts of the case are still coming to light, but early investigations into Yamagami's motives suggest his original target may not have been Abe. Vice News reported that Yamagami was motivated by hatred of a religious group. That turned out to be the Family Federation for World Peace and Unification the Unification Church for short, once more commonly known as the Moonies. Yamagami alleged that the group drove his mother to bankruptcy by soliciting large donations. Because COVID-19 restrictions prevented him from traveling to South Korea to assassinate Hak Ja Han, the head of the Unification Church, he targeted Shinzo Abe instead. Yamagami reportedly blamed Abe and his grandfather, conservative politician Nobusuke Kishi, for publicly supporting the group. The church responded by confirming that Yamagami's mother was a member, but insisting that the organization doesn't force members to donate money. They pledged to cooperate with law enforcement, and in 2009 had agreed to pay back some of Mrs. Yamagami's donations to the church. But the events cast a new light on the long-standing link between the Unification Church and political movements across the globe. Back in 1977, a U.S. Congressional Investigative Committee discovered the Korean Central Intelligence Agency had used the Unification Church movement to gain a foothold in U.S. politics. In the 1980s, the Unification Church founder, Sun Myung Moon, created the Washington Times, a conservative newspaper that's still published in Washington, D.C. today. And in 2021, former President Donald Trump, alongside Shinzo Abe, spoke at an event organized by Moon's widow. But all of that is just the beginning. The Unification Church's reach is massive, and its history is nothing short of miraculous. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is the first episode in a four-part deep dive into the Unification Church, once commonly known as the Moonies. Over the next few weeks, we'll follow the church's history as it goes from a controversial Korean religious movement to a massive organization with followers all around the world and an influential political body. This time, we'll start with a familiar story, one about a man who went from rags to riches by preaching to the masses. We'll cover the early days of the Unification Church's founder, Sun Myung Moon, and how his experiences laid the groundwork for the group's later success. Next time, we'll follow the church as it spreads to the West. We'll take a look at Moon's budding business empire, as well as the early controversy the church faced in the United States. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. 
but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. The recent stories connecting the Unification Church to Shinzo Abe's assassin is far from the only time the group has grabbed headlines. In its over 60-year history, the group has been branded as heretical, derided as a cult, and criticized for the political views it promotes. Yet despite the controversy, the Unification Church currently claims to have millions of members worldwide, though the actual numbers are unknown. Its founder, Sun Myung Moon, leveraged the group's influence to launch massive manufacturing and food businesses, as well as a media company. That kind of success doesn't happen overnight, and no quick overview can really do justice to the extraordinary empire of the Unification Church. To fully understand the group, we have to start with the experiences and faith of Sun Myung Moon. The founder of the Unification Church led a remarkable life by nearly any measure. But before we go on, we should give a bit of a disclaimer. Due to the fervent followers Sun Myung Moon inspired and the nature of his beliefs, his history has been mythologized over time. As a result, it can be hard to parse fiction from fact from everything in between. That means that concrete information about his early life is sparse. For the most part, we've tried to rely on primary sources. Many of these have been collected in author Michael Breen's biography, Sun Myung Moon, The Early Years, 1920-53. But some claims may need to be taken with a grain of salt. What does seem clear, however, is that from the beginning, many believed Moon was destined for something incredible. Months before his birth in 1920, a fortune teller who lived in a neighboring Korean village predicted that a great man would be born into Moon's family. His uncle once remarked that the boy would either become a king or a terrible traitor. Moon's older brother, Yong Soo, was close with him and always had faith that his brother would become a great man one day. But few in the early years would have believed Moon's path lay through faith. While he had some Christian relatives, his family raised him according to traditional Confucian principles and wasn't very religious. Until about 1931, that year Moon's sister developed some kind of mental illness. It's unclear exactly what occurred, but the family believed the spirit of a tiger who had killed an ancestor was plaguing her mind. The extended family performed spiritual ceremonies to exorcise the spirit, but the illness didn't go away. Desperate, the family turned to a local Christian healer, who somehow helped her recover. 
But things got worse from there. Moon's cherished older brother, Yang Su, also started having trouble controlling his emotions. His behavior was so erratic that he wasn't fit to work. The problems continued until the same Christian healer traveled to Moon's village and cured his brother too. While the mental issues subsided, the family still found themselves in a run of bad luck. Their animals died and their stored food supply was destroyed in a freak accident. It must have felt like the universe was out to get them. Looking for any solution, the family started attending church. Moon was among the most passionate about the conversion. He took to venturing into the hills past his home to pray for hours at a time. At age 13, Moon asked God for unparalleled greatness. He prayed for the wisdom of great biblical figures and for a love even more powerful than Jesus. And according to Moon, his prayers were answered. He claimed that in 1935, when he was 15, Jesus appeared before him. The Son of God asked Moon to take over his mission on Earth. It was exactly what Moon had dreamt of, maybe the highest hope of any passionate Christian. But he refused God's request. While he wanted to be great, he was terrified of making his Creator a promise he couldn't keep. Jesus wouldn't take no for an answer, though. He asked Moon twice more insisting that no one else could carry on his mission. Finally, Moon relented. He would follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. It's hard enough to believe that a 15-year-old spoke to God, but even more remarkable is that Moon apparently didn't share his vision or his ultimate goals with anyone else at the time. On the outside, he continued living the life of a normal teenager, but in private, he studied hard to become a religious leader. He spent hours reading about the lives of the Christian saints. In some ways, they were the realization of what he wanted to become, men and women whose legendary faith enshrined them in the history books. But Moon wasn't one to rein in his ambitions. He wanted to know and understand truths that even eluded the spirits. He strove for absolute perfection, the life of a second Christ. As he poured over the Bible and communed with God, Moon started to believe that Jesus' goals went beyond the crucifixion. If he hadn't been killed, Moon thought Christ would have gone on to raise a family and found a real kingdom of God on earth. So Moon decided it was up to him to pick up where Jesus left off. First, he embarked on a 40-day fast. Like Christ on his journey into the desert, he felt himself being tested. He communed with the spirits of other religious figures, wanting to be certain he was following the true path of God. He said he discussed his goals with the spirits Buddha and Muhammad, among many others. At the end of the 40 days, young Moon confronted Lucifer, the devil. God appeared before them both, taking the form of tidal waves and cloud-topped mountain peaks. The Lord asked Moon what he believed had caused Adam and Eve to be expelled from paradise. When Moon answered, illicit love, God rejected him, telling him he was wrong. Moon felt a rush of force, as if the entire universe had crashed into him at once. Moon felt blindsided and confused, but remained certain of his convictions. He insisted illicit love was to blame again and again. God denied it. When Moon tried a third time, he felt the evil around him vanish. God and Lucifer both agreed that Moon was correct. It had all been a test. Moon kept this confrontation, like his other visions, to himself. To the outside world, he seemed like a normal kid. 
At school, he got along with his fellow students and was well-liked. But he couldn't totally hide his powerful faith. Once, when saying grace at a family meal, he went on for so long that almost all of his other relatives had fallen asleep by the time he was done. On other occasions, he spent hours alone in the wilderness praying. Sometimes he even stayed out all night. And he took that passion with him when he moved from his tiny village in 1938. He originally wanted to be a teacher, but failed the entrance exams because he was colorblind. So instead, he traveled south to Seoul to study electrical engineering. Without much money, Moon made do by rooming with several other young men and pinching pennies. While he studied, he got involved in a local church and eventually took a part-time job teaching at the Sunday school. On some days, he and other church members traveled around preaching and spreading the word on their own. There in the streets, Moon honed his skills and sometimes drew a crowd. On more than one occasion, the authorities arrived to break up the commotion. Thanks to these efforts, Moon developed a reputation for kindness and faith among his friends. All the while, he remembered his goal of continuing Jesus' work to unite true believers. After he graduated in 1941, he faced a crossroads. At the time, Korea was occupied and controlled by Japan, which had its eyes on the West as World War II raged. Japan drafted thousands of Korean men to join the military and fight for them. Korean girls were forced into sex work for Japanese soldiers. It wasn't just the Korean people that were under attack, but their culture, too. Their language and traditions were suppressed. Eventually, Koreans were even required to take Japanese names. To the Japanese government, Christianity was another foreign obstacle in the quest for total domination. As the 1940s dawned, missionaries were expelled from Korea, and people were forced to worship at Shinto shrines instead. Everything Moon held dear was under attack, and he knew it. He saw Japan as an oppressor, and to defeat it, he went straight into the heart of the enemy. In 1941, Moon moved to Tokyo to enroll in a technical school for electrical engineering. He let his revolutionary feelings show at a meeting with other Korean students, where he burst into a loud, patriotic song praising their home country. It was a risky move that earned him some admiration. From there, he emerged as an unofficial leader among the Christian students. His commitment to his faith started to become more extreme and, at times, bizarre. He deliberately starved himself, claiming he wanted to love God more than food. He was especially worried about fighting sexual temptation, since he blamed sinful love for the fall of man. Moon avoided eye contact with women and was lax with his personal appearance, hoping that would keep them from approaching him. And he didn't stop there. As he got older, Moon's unusual habits became more pronounced. He still had friends at school, but didn't spend as much time around campus as everyone else. Instead, during the days, he often ventured into the city to take part-time work. Sometimes he gave all his wages away to his buddies. He said his real aim was to get to know Japan and form a bond with its people. He seemed to style himself as something between a budding revolutionary and a mystical priest. He knew people were suffering and believed that was exactly when they needed religious guidance most. Like many religious leaders, Moon wanted to tap into the public consciousness to understand the average person's spiritual needs. In the uncertainty of wartime, the environment was ripe for someone to emerge as a religious guru. That doesn't mean Moon had any unique insight into the world at this time, but he did have a willingness to listen. 
Once, in a move that seemed ripped straight from an outdated rom-com, Moon claimed he visited a sex worker just to hear her life story. Clearly, some of his attempts to reach out were a little misguided. But while he was certainly strange, no one could claim Moon wasn't sincerely committed to his faith. For all of his odd behavior, he also made grand gestures of kindness, and friends reported that he seemed genuinely glad to help others. But though he might have been trying to spread goodwill, the world at large was still at war. While Moon stopped short of fomenting real rebellion, he publicly associated with communists and called attention to himself with his outspoken Christianity. He had to have known he was on a collision course with the authorities, and it was only a matter of time before things came to a head. Coming up, Moon's faith is tested. What could be more shocking than uncovering the dark secrets behind history's biggest stories? Realizing that everything you thought was true was a lie. Hi, it's Molly from the Parkhead series, Conspiracy Theories. Each week, we take a closer look at the blurred line between fact and fiction, revealing that there may be more to the so-called truth than you think. The rise and fall of J. Edgar Hoover, 75 years of Roswell, the tragic death of Princess Diana. On Conspiracy Theories, we leave no stone unturned and no skeptic unheard. Some may be just outlandish claims. Others may make you rethink everything. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Conspiracy Theories. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 1943, 23-year-old Sun Myung Moon graduated from technical school as an electrical engineer. Because of his degree, he was exempt from serving in World War II, but was required to work at a company that advanced the Japanese war effort. So he moved back home to South Korea, got a job in construction, and settled in Seoul. As was tradition, Moon's parents arranged a marriage for him with a woman named Che Sun Kil. Moon accepted. He believed getting married was God's ultimate wish for him, a way to avoid sinful, illicit love. Raising the ideal Christian family was part of his spiritual mission, something Jesus was stopped short of achieving. So Moon took his relationship seriously at first. He treated his wife with compassion and worked to provide for her. But the couple had only been in Seoul for around a year when they faced their first major obstacle. One of Moon's friends was a communist and refused to enlist in the war, which had put him at odds with the authorities. During an interrogation, the friend let Moon's name slip, and soon the cops were on his doorstep. Moon was hauled off to the police station and accused of being a communist dissident. He insisted he couldn't be a communist simply because he was a Christian, not an atheist. And while he knew being a Christian wasn't exactly desirable either, it was better than being a political rebel. But his interrogators refused to believe him. 
they beat him senseless, tied him up, and repeatedly poured red pepper water down his nose to force him to confess. Even in the face of torture, Moon remained resolute. He was simply a Christian, that was all. Yet the nightmare continued for 60 days straight. Finally, his tormentors relented and allowed him to go free. Soon afterward, he went back to work as if nothing happened. That kind of treatment was the brutal reality for many Koreans, and things continued that way for the next year. It wasn't until late 1945, when Japan surrendered, that change seemed possible. Many Koreans were jubilant, hoping that their country would finally be free. But while Japan was sent packing, it was replaced by the Soviet Union and the United States. The U.S. set up an interim military government in the South, while the Soviets empowered a Christian Korean nationalist, Cho Man Shik, in the North. Moon, like many of his countrymen, was disturbed by the path Korea was being forced down. As the years passed, the North and South became polarized. Even with the war over, tensions rose. It was the exact opposite of what Moon hoped to achieve. Instead of coming together, the Korean people were being divided. But now, no longer subjected to Japanese oppression, he felt he could finally spread his beliefs. His goal was to unite Christians all over the country under his banner and continue Jesus' work on Earth. Until mid-1946, Moon participated in a small Christian group in Seoul. Like everywhere he went, he earned a reputation for his intense, earnest spirituality. But for an unknown reason, there was internal conflict, and Moon left the group. After that, he decided to travel to North Korea. The exact reason is unclear, as Moon's first son, Sung Jin, was born in April 1946, and the new father had plenty to take care of at home. The Unification Church claims that Moon was struck by a sudden vision from God, commanding him to travel north. Whatever prompted the decision, it would forever alter his destiny. Moon left his family behind and snuck across the border in June. The North Korean capital, Pyongyang, was home to a sizable number of Christians. But as the Soviets seized more power in the region, they started to crack down on religious institutions. Moon knew of the danger, but it didn't stop him from pursuing his mission to spread God's word. He met up with the leader of a local Christian group, and they allowed him to give some guest sermons at their church. The service was unlike anything the audience had experienced before. Traditionally, Korean services were divided, with women on one side of the room and men on the other. But Moon grouped everyone together. In addition to the conventional hymns, he sang Korean folk songs, a patriotic act that was unusual for a religious service. Right away, his flock knew he was a different kind of preacher. Then came the sermon. Moon shocked his audience by telling them that Jesus Christ was not destined to die so young. He claimed the Son of God should have lived on, that his aim of uniting the world had been interrupted. Now, as Christians, they needed to do what Jesus could not. They had to build the kingdom of the Lord themselves, right in Korea. Tears streamed on his face as the congregants took in his words. The story of Jesus' powerful redemption was turned into an unmitigated tragedy, with God's endless love stymied by human hate. The sermons that followed in the coming weeks were equally moving. After hearing him speak just a few times, some in Moon's audience were already convinced he was touched by God. But the power of his words had consequences. 
After Moon launched into a tirade, blaming sinful lust as the reason humankind was expelled from paradise, some of his flock stopped having sex with their spouses. That brought some angry husbands and wives to his services looking for answers. When they saw men and women worshipping together, one man leapt to a cynical conclusion. He accused Moon of having an affair with his wife and reported him to the cops. In August 1946, authorities dragged Moon to a police station in the dead of night. Because he'd snuck over from the South, they accused him of being a spy working for the U.S. government. For the second time, he refused to break under severe torture. His captors denied him food and sleep for days at a time. The barbaric treatment continued for nearly two months. On October 31st, the authorities released Moon into the custody of his new followers. By that point, what remained of his clothes were caked with blood, and he couldn't stop vomiting. A few people expected him to die. Instead, he made a miraculous recovery and went back to preaching. By late 1947, his church had grown to around 40 regular members. Those who fell under his spell avidly believed that Moon received revelations from God. Moon told his flock that Jesus would return to Earth in Korea and asked them to pray to the new Christ. Though he never specified who the new Christ was, many drew the obvious conclusion that Moon meant himself. And that kind of rhetoric didn't build many bridges with more Orthodox Christians. For the other churches in the area, he was nothing but a blasphemer. In their anger, Moon's potential allies turned to their mutual enemy for help, the Communists. Dozens of complaints flew in, accusing Moon of impersonating Christ and conning vulnerable people for donations. In February 1948, the authorities arrested him yet again. This time, the powers that be actually took Moon to trial in April. But it hardly seemed to matter. The verdict was a foregone conclusion. Within hours, a judge had sentenced him to five years of hard labor for spreading lies and tricking his followers. Moon accepted the ruling with characteristic serenity, though he protested when the judge accused him of peddling falsehoods. Once at the labor camp, there wasn't much to be serene about, though. Authorities eventually transferred him to one of the harshest sites in the country. His captors confined him to a bare hut with around 20 other men in dangerously low temperatures. During the days, they put Moon to work at a fertilizer factory. Teams of 10 men were ordered to fill hundreds of 88-pound bags with ammonium sulfate every single day. The chemicals burned the flesh off of their fingers. As an added humiliation, random prisoners were chosen to sing or perform for the guards during lunch. The penalty for eye contact was a beating. In such an unforgiving environment, people fell like flies. Moon saw several healthy men perish after mere months in the camp. He knew that if he wanted to survive for five years, he would need a superhuman resolve. So that's exactly what he strove for. He started waking up before everyone else and throwing himself into his work, as miserable as it was. He told himself that each bag of fertilizer he filled up was one less burden his fellow inmates would have to bear. He didn't believe there was any chance for escape or rebellion. All he could do was hold on. Coming up, the rise after the fall. Now back to the story. In 1948, North Korean authorities sentenced Sun Myung Moon to five years in a labor camp. 
He leaned on his faith for support, determined to survive, get out, and spread God's word around the world. And over the years, he proved himself, winning several awards at the camp recognizing his hard work. Many of the prisoners, including their de facto leader, grew to respect him. Eventually, Moon started spreading his gospel in secret to the people he felt he could trust. He slowly gathered some disciples, though his movements were hampered for obvious reasons. Even so, he remained committed to his mission. And while he could only win over a few people at a time, it's easy to understand why he had such a powerful effect on some of his fellow prisoners. He really did walk the walk. Accounts from the period portray Moon as practically the embodiment of a saint. His mother was allowed to visit him a few times, and she painstakingly prepared him food and knit him new socks to ease his suffering. Each time, she watched in tears as he turned around and gave the food and clothing away to needy prisoners instead. No matter how much she begged, he refused to show selfishness or denounce his beliefs. She tried to convince him to give up preaching. But it was like asking him to stop breathing. He never let her or anyone else see him waver. At the factory, he refused to take the easy jobs of tying up and organizing the sacks of fertilizer. Instead, he insisted on doing the heavy lifting, even after his new followers tried to help him out. Moon proved his sincerity in one of the harshest environments possible. It's not hard to understand why people flocked to his side. Unlike other fledgling religious leaders, he wasn't out for their money. He didn't ask his followers for anything except loyalty and a commitment to spread his gospel. He said he wanted to help them. This narrative eventually formed the foundation of Moon's message and lent a lot of credibility to his beliefs. The simple fact that he kept his faith despite unimaginable suffering convinced many to believe in him. Who wouldn't trust a saint? Still, glimmers of hope were few and far between in the camp. When North and South Korea officially separated in mid-1948, prisoners had their sentences cut in half. Moons went from five years to three. It was a blessing, but didn't exactly make those three years go by any faster. The struggles continued until late 1950. At that point, southern forces had beaten back the north. One day, Allied planes reached Moon's labor camp and unleashed a hail of bombs. Chaos erupted as buildings exploded, and some 270 people were killed. With few options, the guards planned to retreat north with the remaining prisoners to another camp, where their detainees were all emaciated and half-dead from hunger and overwork. After some discussion, the guards decided to abandon their plans. They had no idea when the bombers might come back, and no reliable way to transport the prisoners anyway. What happened next was a real-life farce. The lead guard agreed to let the prisoners out on the condition that they promised to return to the camp when the war ended. It wasn't a hard sell. Once every man had agreed to come back and serve out their sentence, they were set free. Moon had officially survived hell on Earth, but it was a long road back to safe harbor. He and one of his new followers set out on the treacherous, nearly 200-mile journey back to Pyongyang by themselves. For the next week and a half, he and one of his followers trudged through the war-torn countryside on foot, eating rotten vegetables to sustain themselves. Once they arrived in Pyongyang, Moon's first priority was gathering his followers. The 30-year-old thought of his devotees as his students. He felt he had an obligation to make sure they were safe which apparently outweighed his responsibility to his wife and son, 
who he hadn't seen in four years. In the end, he managed to check on a few of his supporters before setting off again on foot back to South Korea. It was another harrowing journey, but thanks to some much-deserved good luck, Moon and two of his followers made it across the border. Moon had no idea where his family was, but he hoped they still weren't in Seoul. Because by January of 1951, North Korea was once again gaining ground in the South. United Nations troops retreated from Seoul that same month. After arriving in the city, Moon learned his wife had moved to Busan on the East Coast. He and his companions decided to retreat there instead. They weren't alone. Hundreds of thousands of refugees crowded camps, eking out a life any way they could. Luckily, Moon managed to find some acquaintances to stay with temporarily. Of course, he never stopped preaching to anyone who was willing to listen along the way. Even as his country burned around them, he believed Korea would emerge as a powerful Christian country. As always, his gentle but firm faith convinced those closest to him that he'd been chosen for something special. And for the first time in years, Moon had the time and freedom to take the next step forward in his mission. He began the long process of transcribing his religious teachings while taking odd jobs to make a living. He finished his work, which would be titled The Divine Principle, in May 1952. Finally, for the first time, Moon had his mission in writing. He claimed he'd bring all the Christians of the world together and that the new kingdom of God would start in Korea. But just like before, his teachings were considered heretical by Orthodox Christians. One of them even dropped by his home unannounced to try and show him the error of his ways. She thought she could lead him to the light. Instead, Moon subjected her to a three-hour lecture on his spiritual theories. Clearly, she wasn't going to change his mind. But the woman who'd come to save him found herself doubting her own faith. Moon's gentle demeanor contrasted with the radical confidence he had in religious matters. He didn't usually raise his voice, but he was utterly inflexible in his teachings. He had a Bible verse in his pocket to counter every rebuttal, though he was careful to never make skeptics feel small. Rather, he empowered them to pray and come to their own conclusions. Yet there was more hardship ahead for Moon. In November 1952, he reunited with his wife, Che, and his six-year-old son, Sun Jin, for the first time in as many years. Things didn't go well. Moon's wife was broken-hearted and furious that Moon had taken so long to find her. She'd raised their child totally on her own. She'd tried going to North Korea multiple times to see him, but the guards never allowed her through. Once, the border patrol captured and tortured her. Despite everything, Che tried moving in with Moon again, but his behavior only frustrated her more. He clearly put his holy mission above all else, including his own family. She begged Moon to take a more lucrative job and stop living in poverty. He refused. She asked him to stop letting so many people come and go in the house at all hours. He refused. The conflict led to screaming, cursing, and tears. Moon hadn't shared his true religious beliefs with his wife before leaving North Korea, so she had no idea about his supposed mission from God. He tried explaining it to her, but she couldn't believe he felt his calling was more important than their family. From her point of view, all she saw were people flocking to hear her husband speak and seeking his advice. She was jealous and hurt that Moon refused to compromise for her, but had no problem catering to strangers. 
Meanwhile, Moon saw himself as selfless. He believed he was being saintly by treating his wife like he treated everyone else. It's impossible to know how he really felt about Che, but as always, he was headstrong. So Moon continued preaching and his wife tried to adapt, but the writing was already on the wall. Sun Myung Moon was committed to being the new Christ, and nothing would ever change that. In September 1953, Moon moved back to Seoul while his wife remained in Busan. That same year, North and South Korea signed a ceasefire. By that point, Moon had raised a handful of followers in Busan and the town of Taegu. There were enough of them that for the first time, they needed some kind of name. In 1954, Moon legally registered his church as the Holy Spirit Association for the Unification of World Christianity. He told his devotees that his ultimate goal was to unite all Christians under a single banner. He didn't see his church as a distinct sect. He hoped that everyone could get along according to his teachings. The very idea of having separate sects would gradually disappear. But the future would be unlike anything he'd imagined. The Unification Church had officially begun. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two on the Unification Church. We'll follow Sun Myung Moon as he develops his church into a budding empire and turns his attention to the business world. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Cults was written by Terrell Wells, edited by Robert Tyler Walker, fact-checked by Claire Cronin, researched by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood, and produced by Travis Clark. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 